0: This is the Nomad Futurist podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your co-host Nabil Mahmoud from Kona, Hawaii. This is your co-host Philip Koblis joining you today from Washington, D.C. And this is
1: Craig Huffman actually joining you from Leesburg, Virginia, en route back to
0: my hometown of Chicago, Illinois. Craig, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. We have had several conversations over the year, and uh, I believe we've been trying to get you on our platform since January of this year from PTC in Hawaii. It's right around the corner. As a matter of fact, it's going to be here in about right, a month. Coming or up so soon. so we're, I'm going to see you there again very soon here. Yes, sir. Before we get started, I want you to take uh, a minute or two here. Quickly you introduce yourself as to what are you doing these days. Yes, thank you. My name is Craig Huffman.
1: I'm the co-founder and CEO of Metro Edge Development Partners. Metro Edge is actually a commercial real estate investment firm, but our initial investment will be a data center in Chicago. It Will be a 24 megawatt, uh, 200,000 square feet, five-story construction building located centrally near downtown Chicago. But ironically, not ironically, interestingly, on the near west
0: side of Chicago. How did you end up picking Chicago? I do know that those are your roots, but a five-story building in yeah. downtown Chicago, how did that come about? Absolutely. So prior to
1: MetroEdge, I co-founded and launched a real estate investment firm. It was a private equity firm that operated for 14 years. We bought commercial real estate all over metropolitan Chicago, from the suburban areas to the inner city. And so real estate has really been what I've focused on for the last 20 years. I haven't worked for anyone other than myself since 2004. So it's been quite a journey. When I say it out loud, I'm like, man, that sounds like a long time.
2: Are you a good boss to yourself?
1: I sometimes want to fire myself, but (laughs) that's, that's the way it goes. You have days where you love your boss and you have days where you hate your boss, but it's the thrill, right? Every day is different. And so as a result, I tell people, As I've gotten older, I believe I'm getting wiser and I think it's important to enjoy the ride. So many of us are anxious about what we don't know. And I recently heard something that I thought was very profound. It said the part of the brain that controls anxiety, being anxious, is also the part of the brain that controls our ability to be grateful. And so therefore it is difficult to be anxious and grateful in the same moment. And so when I think about my journey as an entrepreneur, I constantly remind myself of having a spirit of gratefulness because my story is not just my story. It's the story of my parents, the story of my father in particular, who was born in 1932 in the Jim Crow South. My father was the greatest man in my life. He passed away in 2012. Interestingly, he always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but he was born in the wrong era. He was born in an era where black men were not able to walk into a bank and get a commercial real estate loan, or talk about building a a $250 million data center. So my worst days, I tell people my problems, and there are problems, bigger the job, the bigger the problems. My problems would have been his prayers because he just wanted a shot and he never got it. And so I often reflect on that on my days and say, I should appreciate this journey because it's not guaranteed.
0: It wasn't given to my father of course, he'll be very, very proud of your achievements and what you've been able to accomplish. What did he do? What line of work was he? My father
1: was an academic. He started his career as a teacher in elementary school. He was very ambitious. He was born in Troy, Alabama, as I said earlier, 1932 South. And for many African-Americans at that time, there weren't many options career-wise. Education was one of the few and society was very segregated. And so he taught African-American children, because that was the only option at that time if if you became a school teacher, but he was very ambitious and he went to a principal of a local elementary school where he worked. And and my father, actually my father's story, he started college, but he was, I don't say poor, he was poor, couldn't afford the OR, right? And so he started college two years in, had to drop out, use the GI Bill, one of the few African-Americans that was able to successfully use the GI Bill. To then, he did military for two years, came back, and then finished his undergrad, and then immediately got a master's in education. And from there, became a school teacher. And so he went to this principal, and my father asked, well, how long does it take for me to become a principal? I looked at him and said, you need to wait about 20 years, boy, not man, boy, and then come back. And so shortly thereafter, my father left Alabama and didn't return other than to see family. But he moved to Chicago. He was part of the Great Migration, looking for opportunities in the North. And so he and my mother moved here. And
0: that defines how I am a Chicago. That's quite a story. Now, I've got a lot of questions I didn't tell, Stu. How did you get into space to begin yeah, with? Because looking yeah, at your profile... That wasn't what you started with. I mean, you are no, 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 a nonprofit management person, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. That was, I would kind of say it was a little bit of the family business. Both my parents were educators. My mother actually was a, a school social worker in a very low income community, a guidance counselor, right? Helping kids in elementary school kind of figure out their way. Many of the kids that she worked with were from very, very low income homes, housing projects, low income families. And then my father eventually became a college professor and then eventually a president of one of the city colleges. And so for me, that's what I grew up with. And so my early career was kind of the family business, which was education, giving back. And so after I graduated from Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, I actually got a master's. And a lot of people are surprised to hear it's a master's in social work, right? And I tell folks as I've gotten older, that social work degree is as important as my MBA in finance and everything else, because there's so many people that walk around society, particularly in the world of business, that have trauma that is unresolved. They're broken, but yet they hide it. And so as you rise up and you start negotiating, you have to understand the context of where people are coming from. And so my early career was a reflection of my greatest influence, my parents. But by the age of 27, I was the executive director, CEO of a large nonprofit. All my time was spent asking rich people for money. And so inevitably the
2: question that emerged was, how do I get to sit on that side of the table? right what's amazing about the social work degree i often say that in business it's really more psychology than it is any practical certainly in our world technical knowledge is knowing how to deal with people and how to communicate but the social work thing it, it seems like it gives you a superpower and that superpower is perspective it totally
1: does i think oftentimes the concept Of privilege. We're all like the three of us are privileged in our own way, whether we choose to understand it or not. Last night I had dinner with some friends and they were talking about traveling in India, traveling in Peru, and seeing the level of poverty. Again, we are all privileged when you put it in a world context. And so I think some of what you you are saying is an ability to understand our blessings and our challenges. And I think that's the perspective. All of us are trying to solve this thing called life. And that's a big part of. The journey, right? Whether you're going to be happy, whether you're going to be unhappy, whether you're going to understand what you do have versus what you don't
2: have, does that make sense? Oh, totally. I, I, and again, you look at perspective as I, I've always looked at it as a superpower. And you don't know until that, it's understanding that that empathy, understanding like what someone else is going through. If you can harness it, is an incredible skill set. Did you have any siblings? I do. I have an older brother, 10 years older. Actually,
1: I, I have uh, a half brother. My father uh, has a son before he married my mother. And so I actually have two brothers. I have to clarify. I found out about him uh, about 10 years ago after my father passed. Uh, great guy. So yeah, I have two right. amazing brothers. My brother, funny story, six foot six. I'm six one. so he always calls me little guy. I was like, <laughs> not really little at six one, bro, but to you, I am,
2: right? Did they follow a similar trajectory career-wise?
1: Yeah, so interestingly, my brother was a great athlete. He played basketball probably, it was the early 80s. He probably should have played basketball overseas if that were a more defined career path. He's been a lifelong salesperson. He lives in Atlanta, Georgia. He's married, has two kids. He did more of the corporate thing initially, and then he's been kind of independent. I don't say he's semi-retired, but he has some good passive income that lets him Enjoys life, has an RV and travels the country. I tell him, "You figured out more life than most people." Absolutely,
0: yeah. Well, that's off yeah. the battle. So, why did you end up choosing as a young man nonprofit management? I mean, how, yeah, how did so, that come yeah, about? Because that's not really like on being an educator. Or that's at right. Least well, it was it
1: was a family influence. I mean, oftentimes we see good and bad what happens in our home. My parents talked about politics. My father and my mother met Dr. Martin Luther King. They were in Alabama. So when the civil rights movement was forming, they were there, they were present, man. And so for me, that's the context of how I grew up. What I realized, right, early on, you're very idealistic, I want to change the world. And then you begin to evolve and realize that, well, resources are an important part of changing the world. And so the first phase of my 20s, I jokingly say I wanted to save the world, right? And then ultimately, I went back to business school, University of Chicago, became an entrepreneur right after I finished, which is a tough road. But I said I wanted to own a little piece of the world because ownership matters. When you begin to think about communities that are empowered, ownership, not just of your home, but even of your own destiny. Ownership is an important concept. So for me, it was having this opportunity to run an organization at a young age. In realizing that at 27, I, I had a non-profit social work degree. I was the CEO of a, no, a large non Check, check, right? And so, okay, what's my next challenge? Tell you what, I want to go back to business school. I want to be an entrepreneur. The guys that were funding my non-profit were heavily in real estate. They were successful entrepreneurs, commercial real estate titans of Chicago. And so many of these guys became mentors to me. And many of them, when I told them, hey, I want to get in real estate, I want to buy initially properties in tough neighborhoods, I knew I wasn't going to have a competitive advantage going to more affluent, predominantly white neighborhoods. So I started in the toughest neighborhoods, neighborhoods that I had served when I ran the nonprofit. And so I flipped the business plan into one that ultimately started very small, very humbly. I had a trader that put up enough capital for me to have six months of runway. I left my full-time job. And my belief was I'm going to make this work or not, but I'm committed to doing whatever I can to make it work. Six months turned into two years. That was my first company. I developed ideas to sell properties, learned a lot, learned that contractors are some of the most dishonest guys you can hire. And I literally <laughs> started in Chicago. Different-
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, man, all right, over exactly. the world, man, all over the world, not <laughs> just right. Chicago.
1: But they, um, learned, but
2: they learned how to be dishonest in Chicago. Exactly. They yeah, probably learned from
1: our politicians <laughs> in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be the business we export—corruption. But in any event,
2: yeah, I literally started from the bottom. Did your parents have a perspective when you moved from the nonprofit world? Crazy, into, like that was, <laughs> was crazy,
1: right? Parents always want you to take the safe path. Deviating, right. like my father's dream was for me to be a professor at an academic environment, to get my PhD. It doesn't seem
2: like your father took the safe path. I mean, there was no safe path. Um, There was. No, no. no. no, And We want to protect our children.
1: I have a 14-year-old, 16-year-old, and I myself say, I can't let my love prevent them from doing things that they need to try. Your parents love you, man. They want to protect you. And so my dad was like, hey, I took sacrifices so you wouldn't have to. And my view was, I'm going to take more sacrifices because they were opportunities you were denied that I now have. I can get access to capital. I can raise money to build a business. And so this is the next
0: chapter where
1: the Huffman family needs to go.
0: Amazing. We talk about it all the time and it's actually one of our roots for starting the foundation that it's all about exposure and experiences that result into being the person that you end up being. And you just validated the story. I mean, if it wasn't for that initial exposure growing up with the family that you grew up, you wouldn't be the person that you are today. And it's probably Precise. just in your genes and your personality to give back to the next generation. And well, I think we might not... have to change, change the logo to Craig Humphrey. <laughs> <laughs> just change it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the logo.
0: Yeah, that's the total validity. Now, real estate, I get it, right? It makes sense. It's a much, much easier transition. How did you get involved in the tech sector? That's yes, that great question. unexposed so, market segment to a real estate broker or real estate developer. And that's kind of like the challenge that we've got in our space as well, that not a lot of people understand technology. And The bottom line, the profitability, and the fact that this is actually the core of the society going forward.
1: Every business is in the tech business if they're of scale, right? Even government. I talked about this on a panel yesterday. Government is in the tech business. Think about the pandemic, what we all had to do, what we're doing now. The answer to your question is, I started my career with an initial company. I then moved on and built a real estate private equity company called Ascendance Partners, It was crazy. Everyone thought, I was like, what are you doing, Craig? Take a job. You know, people like Arnie Duncan, you know, the skinny guy with the big ears, Barack Obama. Just go work. Take the safe path. And while Obama was rising, I was hustling to build my business. And successfully, we were able to buy across two investment funds, over $60 million worth of commercial real estate, office, retail. I'm going to tie in how it connects. Industrial, multifamily. One of the buildings that I bought was in Schaumburg. It was a flex industrial office building. We also did our own property management because we ran small funds, so we had to be hands-on. And so what happened was we had an industrial building in Schaumburg that had what in it? A microdata center. It was our best tenant. And it piqued my interest because technology has always been something. I didn't study it, but I've always been intrigued. When I was a 14-year-old, like most boys... Commodore 64, playing video games, sitting around and just enjoying the early days of a tafari and video games and really just wondering, where is this thing going to go? It was always something that was in my mind. I just didn't have avenues. There was no nomad futurist to show me how to turn that into a career. So it's interesting that it was a bit of a pause on tech, but then my real estate platform bought a hundred thousand square foot industrial building that had numerous tenants, but it also had a small data center. And because we did our own property management, I was able to see where the calls were coming from. This guy did his own build out. He was hands off. Whereas everyone else was calling our office, right? About issues Mm -hmm. and wanting this and that, it's too hot, it's too cold. And so I began to study this space and understanding that it was the back end infrastructure that allows us to do all the things that we are so dependent on now. I told yesterday, could any of us imagine going back to Dyla? I mean, this is level set. The speed by which we all expect to get our information—we're addicted. And so, for me, I also looked at when I sold my last business, Ascendance Partners. I successfully exited. I had institutions like University of Notre Dame, Bank of America, PNC Bank, some very wealthy individuals that were my investors. And when we successfully exited, I said, "For my next venture, for my next act." I would like to figure out a way to find the connection between commercial real estate and technology, because my belief was the valuations will be higher if you can find that intersection point. Data centers represent that intersection point, right? And so I wanted to hone in. I wanted to not only look at data centers, because in Chicago, we have been approved for development in the Illinois Medical District. It is one of what could eventually become a billion-dollar development that has life sciences Residential, mixed use, and a data center as an initial
2: kickoff. And you started Metro Edge Partners when It was 2020. Yeah. So do you envision some of the disruption of commercial real estate that is like top of mind now and only probably going to continue to evolve yes. in a whole major cities? So you saw it. So here's the it? Her?
1: I launched, well, no, but you, you see all this gray hair? We're this is called the Great Recession, my friend, launching <laughs> a real estate fund. At the beginning of the Great Recession and then navigating the choppy waters. That By were, the way,
2: at least you have hair that can be gray.
1: <laughs> for now, for now. I'll give you a few years. I may be right there bald, completely bald. The point is, recessions come and go. When I started, there were all these gray hair guys that were giving me advice that I was too young to understand, right? It was like, no one to hold them, no one to fold them. Real estate is a cycle, man. You, you can't time the market, but you got to pay attention. Because when things start moving and you miss it, it's very painful. Because real estate, unlike investing in equities, is not something you can just trade and be out of it in a day or two, right? Real estate takes time. So for me, surviving the Great Recession, I had bought quite a few assets by 2009. Everything I bought was worth less than I paid for it. And so it was a moment of humility where I said, wow, I thought it was my life's work maybe be in the toilet or in the garbage can. And I just kept grinding. I kept working. I kept working. I remember telling my wife, I said, I, I'm not going to do a resume. Guys that succeed in business, there are no options. There is an option. And you run through that wall until you get to success. That was my mindset. And so I kept working, kept working. Pretty soon, those assets that had lower values started rising, right? And I was able to successfully exit. I started selling all the assets in 2018, concluded in 2020. It was a seven-figure liquidity event for me. And I joke and say I make rich people richer. And so as a result, they always
0: take my costs. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that's amazing. <laughs> Starting a business and coming into a segment that you're not a subject matter expert. Oh, God, yeah. I, it's crazy. I can't even imagine how you actually oh, went really out crazier. and raised it doesn't, it
2: doesn't, it doesn't. It doesn't hurt when you have like the soft landing of a seven-finger exit. But yes. Can help.
0: Can help.
1: You
2: can't start.
1: It takes <laughs> uh, to make money.
2: Anyway, it's almost as
1: crazy as some nonprofit dude getting into real estate, man. So it's a different form of crazy. I, I tell people, I've gotten accustomed to jumping out of the plane, not knowing if the parachute's going to work. It's a mindset. And I think to be a successful entrepreneur, there are elements that you have to have of that because they're going to be sleepless nights, going to be nights nice where you stare at the ceiling and wonder, why the hell did I do this? And as after I got into this space and I realized the complexity, one of the things that hit me, like a gut punch, was this is unlike any other real estate I've ever seen. The price per KW, the interconnect fees, the complexity of even the revenue model and how you construct what makes a data center profitable, what are the many different revenue streams that comprise that? That was a steep learning because conventional real estate has a lot fewer moving parts. And so what, what I did is what you have to do. If, if you're going to win, I became a student. I said, you know what, I know what I, d- I know, and I damn sure know there's a bunch of gaps that I don't know. And so I started seeking out people. Ray Parpark, who's at the University of Chicago, has become a mentor. He's become- Friend senior. of the show? Exactly. Ray is an amazing individual. I went to the University of Chicago, paid him a lot of tuition. I said, the least I can do is get something out of it, man. realize education. Right. They didn't
2: realize that tuition was gonna extend for decades.
1: Exactly, exactly. So we're all products of our journey, man. And I sought out people that I knew knew more than me. And at the beginning, it was everyone, and I was just a sponge. I listened. And Seems sometimes like that's I- a common
2: thread. That's right? every transition you have. You're going back yeah. to school, whether it's the MBA yeah. or learning from people. Because can you really get an MBA in the data center world? You can't. You have yeah. to seek out this until the Nomad Future Academy starts giving out MBAs. There you go. You know, there you go. There you. The um, complexity of this industry. The thing
1: that also struck me is. Whether you have no degree or whether you have a PhD, there's a place for you. And, and it, it, it was just fascinating, but it was overwhelming. The pandemic helped. One of the things that I did, pandemic occurred, I prioritized my health. I started working out five, six days a week. It was COVID prison. I said, what would you do in prison? Right. Work out. And then really? I helped, was reading. I was listening to podcasts, technology podcasts. I'm a huge fan of NVIDIA and what they've done to the industry and Jensen and his vision to see what others didn't see when people were saying that Jensen has these science projects that he's engaged in, it was revolutionizing what would become this industry known as data centers, but people couldn't see it. He was a public company and it was a drag on the earnings for the company. So for me, I became a student. And I think if you take that approach, you can figure it out, man. And you also realize they aren't really experts. I've had an opportunity to meet people at the tops of companies. Yeah, they they have knowledge that's impressive. But data centers are so broad. No one person, maybe you guys, but no one person is going to know everything. Except for me. There you and go. maybe Nabil. I think it's tough. It's tough. They, they, they don't it, it is. Know. Maybe, it maybe is. Ray. Maybe Ray. Yeah. Ray, Ray is tremendous. And, and other folks, Brokers, Sean Novak, Jordan Thompson, there are too many people to name that became part of my tribe. It's almost but like, all
2: of them learned through experience. Exactly. And that's the difference. That's the difference. And you, right you know now.
1: what encouraged me? I kept meeting people. I was like, how'd you get in this business? I stumbled in it. I didn't really study it. I just kind of, somewhere else, I was talking to Ria, who was at Oracle yesterday. And she said, 10 years ago, I didn't know what a data center was. That story is so common. And so then there was also a piece where I said, if they can do it, then why can't I? I built a business. I went from nothing. People laughing like, nonprofit, dude, my first business plan, I had a long section about how we were going to help the community, right? And My business plan was there, very thin. Now it's like flipped, but ultimately I still have a section about how businesses have a responsibility to do more than just be profitable. You have to first be profitable, but I think you also have to think about how you leave it better than you found
0: it. So now being on the other side, you flipped tables. You were the guy asking for money and now being on the other side, what have you learned? Are we in a much better position than when you were a man growing up in a society that we had issue with diversity, equity, inclusion, color, race, religion? Are we in a much better position today? We are better. We still have challenges. The irony is, I tell people, my
1: problems today would have been my father's prayers. And so that in and of itself represents the progress. I think it's hard to see it because what am I talking about here? I'm talking about my father. He lived in a different generation. It's that perspective that I carry. And I think when you lack that, it's hard to see we have progressed, not as much as we need to. And unfortunately, I think there are things about our history and past as a country that we've not confronted, honestly, right? One of the things that struck me, I went to D.C. with my family two years ago and I saw the Holocaust Museum and I saw the African-American Museum. And one of the things that really struck me about Germany was they were very intentional about teaching the history of how the Nazi party rose so that kids would be educated and kids' kids would be educated. I don't think we've confronted that in the same way in our country. And so we kind of are like, on this repeat loop constantly going back to things because we haven't confronted the root issues. We haven't had the honest conversations. It sounds to me like Greg Hoffman is gonna run for
2: office one day. This no, everyone said it. It. it'd be my because son or my no daughter. <laughs> no that, sir, is, this is, this no sir, I've been well, close who, to who, it. Uh, yeah, been who been wouldn't to want now. to
0: have a second president from Chicago? Yeah, That's right, it's, right, well, <laughs> maybe one of my children. I,
1: I have fully, right. I, I believe more in being Joe Kennedy nice to launch the dreams and careers <laughs> of my children than John F. Kennedy or or anyone else. I want to make the money so that I can allow them to pursue their dreams.
2: Well, certainly it seems like I haven't done all the tabulations. I have it on a spreadsheet next to me. It seems like mission accomplished in terms of the money-making it, element it, of it. What? So, far. Pretty well. so far, I mean, it, it's yeah. like
1: any, you have to figure it out, right? I think at the end of the day, whether you go into any business or you go into non profit government, there's a learning curve. And I think the people that help close those gaps are so important. None of us are islands. We're all products of those that poured into us to help us get to where we are. And so I think the real tragedy, I was talking to some people last night and I said, when you look at what's happening in Chicago, for example, the, the crime and some of the issues, you begin to look at dissolving of the family. The father has an important role. The mother has an important role. I'm not saying that mothers can't, when forced to play both roles, but I think we can all agree they're roles for a reason and that things are easier. If you don't, are not exposed, as I talked about on the panel, kids raising their hands that I want to be a basketball player. They don't even play on a high school basketball team. It's because all they've seen is exposure to athletes make money. I want to make money. But they're really not saying, is, I want to be a basketball player, I want to be successful. But they only have a limited path by which they can see how to achieve it. So what you guys are doing is an important part, because before you can realize it, you got to visualize it. And so many of our kids, kids in Chicago, man, on the South Side, West Side, don't even go downtown. Downtown is what makes Chicago.
2: It, it's amazing.
1: Like, how do you live in this city and you never go to downtown Chicago?
2: So anyway, it's, an, it's incredible. So it, you've had the experience of obviously growing up to parents that had a, a different generation, different experience. How is that informed? How is that with your own children, keeping them kind of grounded and, and yeah. how would they benefited from your experience? And Absolutely. And keeping Absolutely. Them... I, take a, yeah. I take enormous pride in my kids.
1: They're not privileged brats. My wife and I really wanted to prioritize grounding them. My wife, her family is from Puerto Rico. She was raised uh, with an entrepreneur as her father. So she was a perfect life mate for me because I was jumping out of the plane because she wasn't freaking out. Like Oh, yet again, jumping out of the plane, right? And my kids, I, I give a lot of credit to her. Who she is as a person, she's just grounded. My kids are comfortable in their identity as kids of color. They're comfortable in their skin, so to speak. And so for me, it's what does it matter if I achieve all this, but my home life is in the toilet, right? I mean, this is why I'm doing it. It's just, I I, I want to have a legacy. My legacy is my children. Absolutely. That's the biggest part. When people meet me, it's like, what did I start telling you guys about? Dr. Samuel Huffman. You can't tell a story about Craig Huffman without talking about Samuel Huffman. Indeed. Are they either of them in technology
0: at all or interested in technology?
1: Absolutely. My son, for sure. I took my son to a data center. Uh, Ray uh, gave us a tour, my son and his best friend. Because like a lot of boys, like I was at 14, although it wasn't as sophisticated, the cloud technology that allows him to have his headset play with his cousin in Florida, play with his friends all over the country. I said to him, You know, the infrastructure that supports what you love playing. And he kind of looked, he's like, No. And so it just got this whole conversation about the importance of digital infrastructure and how it enables what he enjoys. But there are many other ways that it plays out. What we're doing now, all aspects of how we do work is impacted by technology. So that little light. Uh, my kids when they were young, also went to coding camps at University of Chicago. My wife and I took the view, expose them to everything, and then, as they get older, begin to let them pick what they want to focus on. My son is definitely inter- interested in tech. My daughter less so, which is part of the challenge with young girls. My daughter likes the idea of being an entrepreneur, so I'm continuing to like massage. technology is so so woven that there's really no way to think about a new business without also thinking about how technology enhances or limits your ability to grow that business.
2: That concept of technology as an enabler, like the more you resist it, it becomes less possible to see an avenue for success. So it doesn't mean everyone needs to go into the digital infrastructure industry, but you need to not be scared of technology in general.
1: Well, and I think the byproduct is some of what you're seeing around the country with pushback. What happened in medieval times? People that were deemed to practice magic were feared. For some folks, technology is like magic because they don't understand it. They just know you get results, but they don't know the underlying reasons why. And so we have to educate the next generation because right now we have people sitting in government in Chicago fighting me, people sending me messages. We're
0: communicating using tech. And
1: they're like, I don't like data centers. Like,
0: let disconnect. me just disconnect you and you won't have any opinion. Oh, right, right. <laughs> I
2: was like, let me take your computer and how about you go back to a typewriter? Let's
0: see they're how accepted. that works
2: they're also emailing you those complaints. Exactly. There's all the communication which enabled by technology, right? Even them saying, no, no, no." I was like, this is
1: nuts. It's nuts. And I think the real point is that people will say things like, oh, data centers don't create a lot of jobs. It's a lie. They enable jobs. Think about the percentage of people that work in government that could not effectively do their jobs during the pandemic renewing your driver's license, city services that are all online. And so this is the disconnect, and it's why we have to educate the next generation. Kids learning basic algebra, basic math, there should also be a component of understanding some of these concepts
0: because they're so foundational. Well, you've said it so well. It's amazing. I think a part of the challenge in the society is that they take it for granted and there's a sense of entitlement that automatically just happens. But they don't understand that you actually need to build an infrastructure to make it happen. But and it's
2: because you always worked
0: while they were alive. Right? So anybody that was born before 2007 doesn't know a world
2: in which the iPhone didn't exist. You don't know a world without the iPhone. I said,
1: I'm old enough to remember when Apple almost went bankrupt. If you can imagine that. Right. When Steve Jobs was fired and not considered the genius that redefined the consumer experience as it
0: relates to technology. These are things that young people have to know and understand. Absolutely. It's our job now to educate them, and it's our job to educate the educators as well, that they need to look at this segment as the core or as the foundation of anything on a go-forward basis. Craig, something actually hit home run with me while I was actually just reading up and catching up on what you've been up to. Talk to us about Dr. Ann Watts.
1: (laughs) Dr. Watts, she was an important woman in my life. She was my public speaking teacher my senior year at Morehouse College, she saw things in me that I didn't see in myself. Not that I lacked confidence, but she had a belief in me. She poured into me. She taught me to speak clearly. She taught me not to use vocal fillers. Yeah, she was old school, man. I give my ability to communicate, first and foremost to my father. He was a great communicator. My mother, great communicator, but Ann Watts, it's kind of like an athlete, has natural ability, but a great coach takes that ability to the next level. Dr. Watts was one of those coaches in my life. I took one class, but her influence on me still lives to this day because she saw a young skinny man at that time that here's the power, here's the power. She selected me to be a presenter. Morehouse College every year has a fundraising event called A Candle in the Dark. One of our most famous presidents talked about Morehouse alums needed to be a candle in the dark, providing a light illuminating in darkness, leadership. And so I was selected to present one of the people that was an honoree at this Candle in the Dark gala. Want to guess who my honoree was? He was a real estate guy. Here I am as a senior in college, not knowing what my career was going to be, not knowing that real estate would ultimately define me more. And one of the biggest real estate titans, African-American, Herman J. Russell, very successful in Atlanta, was the individual that I was given the honor to present. And so I was talking to another uh, friend of mine, uh, Raymond Burrell, who's a great guy, really deep thinker, has been in this space, consider him much more of a technologist and someone that I bounce ideas that I just understand. And we were just saying how things happen. It's not an accident, man. But oftentimes we just don't pay attention. There's an intentionality to the universe that many of us don't get in tune with to understand. It wasn't an accident that I presented someone that is a senior in college that is a lot more relevant
0: to who I am today. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You got to pay attention. Things like you said, things happen for a reason. You got to live that moment and, and be open to it.
1: Yeah. Cool. And, and be curious, just a constant learner. I, I think for me, I am just curious. I want to learn. And if, I think if you take that perspective, you're a lifelong student.
2: Were you always that way? Were you that way in, in high school? No, I probably
1: was a late bloomer, I would say. High school, I always tested well. Everyone always said, Craig's smart. I didn't always apply myself. I wasn't always motivated. If I could get in elementary school, the S, I'm sure in my age, when you had S, you have A, Bs, and Cs, satisfactory or unsatisfactory. And I did enough. When I was really young, it was just purely intellectual ability. When I got to middle school, I didn't feel connected. And so I would always do well enough. I would do the exam. I can get into college. I wrote well. Morehouse is where the light turned on. I arrived on the campus and I saw guys that had my tan that were focused on excellence, that were focused on being the best they could be. And it was at that point, I'll tell you a powerful story. I know we're running out of time. My freshman year at Morehouse College, my first semester, I received a 2.2 GPA. It's the lowest GPA. I remember my father looking at me saying, did you even go to damn class, boy? Like, how did, like, <laughs> you get a 2.2 sign your goddamn name, man? What the hell were you doing? But, freshman, I played a lot of basketball. Basketball was a big love of mine. So at night, I was on the campus playing on the courts till late at night, and I would always win. So I would stay on the courts sometimes. But, yeah, I <laughs> kept winning, right? And so uh, I wasn't going to class because if you stay up till 2, it's hard to make your 8 a.m. classes. So I was missing class. And so what happened was my father the summer between my freshman year and sophomore year, brought me home and my dad, military guy, used the GI Bill. He's like, dot, 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 dot. He looked at me and he probably did the greatest parenting job he's ever done. I wish I could tell him now if he were alive. And that was, he looked at me, he didn't yell at me. And he said, you know what, son? I've come to realize my expectations may just be too high for you. And I believe that there was a greatness in you, but I realize now that it may not be there. He could have yelled at me he could have said whatever he lit a spark and he pissed me off because he was like how dare you (laughs) right screw you that's what i was a conversation i'm having in my head combine that with the fact that i had the two crappiest jobs you could have that summer i was a telemarketer during the day professional guy getting hung up on back when i guess they still call you robocalls ai probably enabled but back in the day you actually had people calling I hated it, but I had to to have a summer job, and I was a janitor at night, so I had two jobs. And so I was a young man, and I was working with guys that were 20, 30 years older than me. This is a full-time job. And so it also gave me a glimpse of what my life could be. And when I came back my sophomore year, I cut all the friends that I had. I remade my circle. I aspired to connect with people that were going where I wanted to be, being good students, leaders, I was dean's list honor roll every semester from that point on. And I became the vice president of the Student Government Association my senior year at Morehouse College. And so almost like people talk about Malcolm finding himself. Well, I didn't go to prison, but I was able to find myself by being in an environment that nurtured, right, and brought out things in me. And my father also saying those things were more effective than if he had yelled at me and said, "Ah," right, because you just get teenagers tune out. And so I, I reflect a lot on that because my son is, has some of me. You know, he's a great student. He, he never gets below a B A. but I know there's more, right? And I know there's an ability, but I don't want to push him to break him. Whereas my daughter is so interesting in girls. She's just like AP classes.
0: Oh, yeah. Right? It's just totally
1: different energy, right? And so I reflect a lot on my own journey and how each one of us has
0: to arrive in our own time.
1: So it's hard to say what's going to lead you to finally have the light turn on. So anyway.
0: Well, I guess the guilt card works. I mean, that seems to be like a common denominator. It 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 does, man. You tell me I can't do that. You you might have
2: invested in my success. (laughs) That is what my culture has given
0: to society, guilt. So you're welcome. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Knowing what you know today and where you're in your life and having gone through trials and tribulations and seeing a significant amount of change globally, what would you do differently with all the knowledge that you have acquired?
1: I would say a couple of things. This is going to sound really simple, but I know now back then I would have bought Apple stock and a whole bunch of other stocks. <laughs> right? Wealthier. So, but no, I think I would go back and talk to a 20-something-year-old Craig that was in a hurry to get somewhere, didn't know where, and just say, enjoy the ride, man. Like, this is a one-way trip, man. And before you know it, you're going to be closer to the end. Each day, we're taking a step closer to the end. Some of us, that's soon. Some of us, it's a long way out. And so the importance of enjoying that ride would be what I would whisper in the ear of that 24-year-old that was like, I've got to be doing this. i got to be, because like once it got turned on in Morehouse, it wasn't really turned off, man. It was like, it was ambitious. And even if you think about it, nonprofit, social work, 24, I received the degree, 27, I'm CEO of a nonprofit. That was a reflection of raw ambition. Went back to business school, use that, not go get a corporate job, but to create my own company, my own platform. So for me, it would be enjoying the ride. And yeah, I'd, I'd pick up some Nvidia stock when it looked like they were about to come <laughs> I would have bought all because I'm a big fan of what they have done for this industry and what they represent. I tell people that they're like the Apple, but for data centers, right? The innovation, right? Taking the software, the hardware, combining it, it's just, it's mind blowing and the vision. And often I'm inspired by people with vision because I think they do things. When you don't have vision, the people
2: will perish. It's easy to have it when you're successful. It's, oh, it's, another, yeah. thing, it's, a, yeah, it's another thing to uh, like, like have such belief in what you're doing that you can ride the ups and downs. And
1: I can tell you, oh, I got all figured. I'm confident all times. That's bullcrap, man. We all have our moments where we question ourselves and we're like, did I do the right thing? Did I make a mistake? When I was pouring a lot of capital in, my wife was looking at me like, how long are you going to go on this Metro Ridge thing? Because we made some money, but you pouring a lot back in. I was covering mm-hmm. And then she encouraged me. I sat down with one of my former investors, billionaire, but phenomenal individual. Billionaires become synonymous with like bad dudes, So I have to clarify what billionaire, but just an incredible human being. And in people to this day, he's achieved something that I think most of us would want if we were fortunate to reach his level, anonymity. Tom Hervis is his name. No one's heard of him, but I guarantee you've probably heard of his company. Maybe not the official name, which is Old World Industries, but the product is peak. If you've been in a Target, Walmart, peak antifreeze, peak liquids, 80% of the market share, the liquids that go in automobiles, his company has a dominant position. No one's heard of him. How many billionaires have anonymity? So he came in and it was a game changer because what it took for us to be fully approved, Right, And mind you, for our site, Digital Realty Trusts, Equinix are struggling with the city of Chicago to get approvals. I'm fully approved. Shovel ready, right? Six million dollars just to get to that. Point. Let that sink in. This is not a game you play with coins. You play with big bills. It's a high stakes poker table. And so even that piece of just the gratefulness of being able to play this game, is buy is significant. It's very significant. I have a New York developer right now interested in buying a minority interest in my development. I, I have a piece of dirt. I don't yet have a data center. I've got to build it. I got a piece of dirt and he wants to pay $6 million based on the valuation to buy 49%. You guys are smart. You can back into the map and how he's valuing my site. If I land an anchor tenant, the value of my site goes over $20 million. And so I, I feel blessed. On my worst days, I say, this is an opportunity to do something that I could only dream about. 20, 30 years ago. And so, again, what did I say earlier? Gratitude, anxiousness. They can't coexist, bro. You got to make a choice. Are you going to be anxious, which is rooted in fear? Or are you going to be grateful for the
0: opportunity to play the game? Wonderful. I mean, you can't actually end this at a better note than that. What a story. Amazing. What a journey. Absolutely amazing. Craig, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. This has been absolutely phenomenal. I look forward to seeing you in person again soon. Absolutely, I'm honored, yeah. man. Thank you for giving me the time.
1: This is a gift to be able to tell my story and tell my parents' story. is
0: powerful because yeah. I honor them. Uh, absolutely, very and touching. i just, just sitting, sitting over, over here, here like, like
2: be powerful for everyone. It's an amazingly inspirational journey that you've been on, and I
1: think it'll it'll move a lot of people. And think about it. We talked about the racial division and strife. What's embedded in my story from my father to me, from my parents to me, is hope. Hope is the essence because my father used to navigate getting home, right? He would see lights at night. He knew it was a cross burning. Crosses were being burned, people were being lynched. And so like just calculate that, navigating how to get home, driving. And so that was his reality. Now my reality is negotiating to build a data center and to be the Jackie Robinson of this industry. I don't think anyone with my tan, correct me if I'm wrong, Nabil or Philip. I don't think anyone's built a state-of-the-art data center, certainly in the last five years, but maybe ever, new construction of the level of what we're doing. It is a Jackie Robinson moment for this industry.
2: To quote your friend, it seems like you're fired up and ready
0: to go. I'm ready, man. I'm ready. Yes, sir. Thank you. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back. Currencies will rebound. Businesses will go on and we will all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. At Nomad Futurist, we are confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.org. And thank you for listening and subscribing, as well as your continued support.